Hi, I'm Scott Fitzpatrick. Welcome to the GAF Podcast. This podcast is for professionals who want to work in the advisory space. It's a series of conversations and essential frameworks to give better advice. It's the stuff they don't teach you at uni. It's where value sits. So buckle in, volume up, let's go. In this podcast, I talk to Angela Harry, estate planning lawyer. We talk estate litigation, why, who, how. We talk succession planning, intergenerational wealth transfer. We talk about scoping the advice, all great skill sets to be a great advisor. She's one of the best. Welcome to another episode of the GAF podcast. My name's Scott Fitzpatrick. So excited to have Angela Harry here from Atwood Marshall. Angela is the guru on estate planning, and full disclosure, she's my lawyer as well, so <laughs> you've done my estate plan, so welcome, Ange. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Maybe let's start with your background. Okay, I have been a solicitor at Atwood Marshall for 15 years, and my focus of my practice has always been in the area of wills and estates, so estate planning, estate administration, and estate litigation. So anything to do with wills, estates, trusts, that's what uh, my role you're encompasses. It. Yes. You're it. And you're part of the STEP organisation as well? Yes. So I've been a member of STEP for a number of years now. So I think that's um, you know, a, a great institution to be a part of. S- Society of Tax and Estate Planning. Society of Trust and oh, Estate trust Practitioners. And estate planning. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's close. Yeah. <laughs> Is that an Australia-wide group or worldwide group? It's worldwide. So there's the uh, Step Australia and then each state has its own group and then it's part of the worldwide Step. Gotcha. Right, let's talk wills and estates. Now, yes. you know, I've been doing this for a little while. I'm a little bit older <laughs> than you. But my goodness, it's it's gone from simple wills to testamentary trust wills to super proceeds trusts to succession planning, to intergenerational wealth. It's just, it's, it's, gone, it's just yes, exploded, hasn't it? It has. It, uh, I look for, even from when I started, how matters we thought were simple, now you look at clients that come in and it's very rare that you get anything that is simple. It's just changed so much, um, even in the, the time that I've practised. So what are you seeing more or less of? You see, you know, the whole succession piece, is it more about people now have... Uh, Mum and daddy got assets, we're in second marriages, maybe there's a family trust there, there's a self-made super fund. So this flow of documents, how's it all pulled together? Yeah, I think there's sort of a combination. I think there's a lot more wealth out there um, and there's also a a lot of different um, types of holding wealth. So people have assets in their personal names, but they've got trusts, they've got companies, they've got blended families. Um, there's just a lot more that needs to be factored in. We don't really have that sort of stock standard nuclear family with just the home anymore. There's so much more that has to come into the estate planning piece. It's funny, isn't it? Sometimes I feel like <coughs> an architect, like going, well, how do we, you know, estate equalisation or estate fairness, how do we divvy up assets to keep everybody happy? Very much. It's a, it's a difficult question. And a lot of it comes down to that initial fact find to work out, you know, who's who in the zoo. Um, you've got blended families. How do you provide for the new spouse and potentially children whilst also ensuring you've got the kids from the prior relationship or relationships 
looked after, how do you do that with assets that are in your personal name and also assets that are joint or outside of the estate. How do we overlay tax overall? Absolutely. That? You know, most people want to look at um, protecting their beneficiaries and asset protection is a, a key piece, but you've also got to look at the tax planning as well and trying to fit all of that into the advice. So I'm going to lead the witness here a little okay. bit, but I find the process <laughs> works really well when you've got an advisor helping it, helping through it. I agree. Uh, I agree. And, and quite often the accountant as well, the collaborative approach you would think would give a better result than an individual trying to work this out. Very much so. I'm a big believer in holistic advice and getting all of the advisors involved, um, particularly for estate planning. Often when lawyers come into it, it may be very transactional. We don't know the family history. We don't have all of those source documents. And so many clients, when I take instructions, they give you information and then you do that background work and you realise, well, no, they don't hold that property in their personal names, that's in a trust. No, they haven't done their super nominations. Yes, there is a reversionary pension, but they didn't realise. So coming to advisors who have got all of that family history, the source documents and the understanding of the structure, in my view, is really helpful. And I really think that advisors should work together because you can't give your advice in a vacuum. You know, lawyers look at one aspect. Advisors are looking at it from a different perspective. So are accountants. That opens up another Pandora's box there about, well, who's responsible for the advice at the end of the day then? It does. And what advice are we looking at? Are we looking at taxation advice? Are we looking at financial advice? Are we looking at legal advice? Estate planning, in my view, encompasses all of that. And you've got to be very clear on who is giving what advice and staying within the area that you can advise on. Separation of advice, separation of duty. I wonder how the insurance companies look at this. Yeah, it's an area that I think is probably going to increase um, in negligence claims. Um, I anticipate we're already getting inquiries where the, the lines are very much blurred around who is doing what, um, who is giving legal advice because of, you know, there's all these online products that are out there these days and it's very easy to say, oh, well, I'll order that trustee for you off the shelf. Oh, I'll do that binding nomination for you. It's legal advice. You know, you've got to be really careful about what you're doing and what you're putting in place, which is why I think it's really important that all of the advisors work together to make sure that the client's getting the right advice and you're staying within the scope of what your role is. So that... that that's great to talk about this because what I never can quite get my head around is someone's giving the advice and then there's the documentation of the advice. Yes, yes. So I have lots of financial advisors and accountants that I work with who talk about estate planning with clients, whether that's getting the wills done, powers of attorney, super nominations, but then it comes down to putting those documents in place and that's the role of the lawyer. And that's where advisors like yourself can have those conversations with clients. But at the end of the day, doing those documents and giving that advice is the role of a solicitor. It's giving legal advice. So it's important that, that those documents are prepared through all of it. So the, just come back to the online then. The online, yes. uh, the promise is that they're taking on the legal responsibility. <laughs> or is that not the promise? It could be they're providing, the promise is they're going to provide documents but not the advice yes or are they giving the advice but and the documents well it's not always clear um right. i've gone on to a lot of these websites where they say well do your will um do your will um you don't even have to talk to anyone fill out our questionnaire 
And when you scroll to the very bottom, every one of those websites has a disclaimer. We are not a law firm. We are not giving legal advice. Um, flip side, when I'm dealing with accountants a lot, you know, we're deciding we're going to need a new trust or a new company. They're pressing a button and getting a... Yeah, look, I think you've got to be, there are, you know, there are providers out there who um, have these documents, but you've got to look at, you know, what advice are you doing? You know, who's deciding who's going to be the appointer? Who's going to control that trust? Um, is there going to be a corporate trustee? How is that going to be set up? You've got to be really clear about, well, am I giving legal advice? And is the way that these documents are being set up appropriate looking at the circumstances of the client? I mean, how many times have we done estate planning um, with clients, looked at those source documents, gone through the trustees, and gone, why has this been set up this way? That leads me to estate litigation. Yes. Well, because this is it, isn't it? No one, you know, you know, with full disclosure, you know, you look after my affairs, but it's the flow of the documents, not the one-off documents. Yes is where the proverbial poo is going to hit the fan here. Yes, and I predict um, in years to come, there is going to be a substantial amount of litigation with documents that have been prepared without the benefit of appropriate advice. Um, and estate planning is so much more than just doing a will or filling out a super nomination. It's looking at it as a whole and it's making sure Yes, you've got your will, you've got your enduring power of attorney, you've got your super nominations where they're needed, the trustees have reviewed, you've got the appropriate um, control succession there with those non-estate documents. And if you're not looking at all of this as a whole, you're really running the risk of things not panning out the way that you intend. So let me be brutal with you. Yes. I quite often walk in and out of legal firms where that occurs daily. Yes. Where lawyers pertaining to the estate plan, yeah, yep. uh, are getting this wrong on a daily basis. I, well, look, we see it a lot. We've got a large um, estate litigation practice, and a lot of our work comes from planning that hasn't been done properly. How far can we go back? <laughs> can we? Well, no, we just, it's just daily we see uh, 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 wills that aren't suitable. I cannot understand how they're ever put together. Yep. Um, and what for a I, client, what, what remediation is there? Look, I think it depends on the circumstances. And something that I've really ingrained in the estate planners that work at our firm is we're not simply a mouthpiece for our client. Our role is not to go, who do you want as executor? How do you want to leave your estate? Our role is to look behind it and go, all right, well, why do you want to do that? Do you realise that if you do it this way, there is a potential claim against your estate? Do you realise there's ways to structure your affairs to potentially avoid or mitigate against a claim? It's not just saying, what do you want to do? Let's fill it out. Here you go. Let's sign. It's giving advice and making sure, all right, well, what are the options? And how can we look at this to try and you know, avoid potential arguments down the track? Can I ask a silly question? Yes. Do you file note? all of those conversations yes. to evidence that you had that conversation and yes. went in this direction with your advice. Absolutely. It's um, incumbent on any solicitor to make sure that they have detailed file notes so that they can show at a later stage what advice was provided, what was discussed with the client 
Um, this can be relevant if there's concerns about the capacity of the client, if there was any potential influence, if anyone else was in the meeting. It's also relevant to determine later on, you know, why did they do it that way or why didn't they do it that way? Um, in terms of state litigation, family provision claims are becoming more and more prevalent where people contest the will because they are not satisfied with the provision that they've received or they haven't received anything at all. That advice needs to be documented because it becomes relevant down the track if there is a claim against the estate. So let's just walk through that family provision then. Yes. Um, I feel like I've either haven't been given enough in the will or I've been left out completely. Yes. Um, is there a time frame I need to lodge that? There is. Um, every state and territory has different time frames to give notice and commence proceedings. Um, predominantly, I look at New South Wales and Queensland. So in both states, you've got six months to give notice of your intention to bring a claim. And then in New South Wales, you've got 12 months to commence proceedings through the court process. And in Queensland, it's nine months. Um, it's really important when people are unhappy with what they received under a will um, or if they have been left out to get advice early on so that notice can be provided because time limits, while sometimes there can be um, a mechanism to bring an out-of-time claim, that is more difficult and there's no guarantee of success. And I assume I can, my reason can be I'm just peeved off I didn't get enough right through to, actually, I'm a family member uh, no one knew about Look, it, or anywhere in between. Potentially. And it's sort of the, the first step is to go, okay, well, is the person eligible? Because there are certain categories of applicants who can bring a family provision claim. It's not anyone in the family who says, well, I want it more. Um, you've got to qualify as an eligible applicant as the first step. The next is the going... So, sorry, eligible applicant. Yes. So, I'm the next door neighbour and Bill promised me the tractor. Is that making uh, eligible? <laughs> no. So in terms of bringing a family provision claim in Queensland, an eligible applicant is a spouse, a child or a dependent. And dependent is quite narrow in terms of the definition. Uh, New South Wales has probably a, a broader class of eligible applicants. Spouse, child, um, financial dependent can include a dependent member of the household. For example, if you've got um, a grandchild who has been raised um, or a, a niece or a nephew who has been that member of the household who has um, been provided with financial support, they are going to fall into a category of eligible applicant. But it's not any old family member or friend who thinks that they should receive something. Um, you have to at first establish that you are eligible. Okay, so now I've demonstrated that. Do I now need to prove? How do I prove or is it hearsay? What, what, what's the process there? Then? So first we look at are you eligible? So if it's a child, you've got a birth certificate. Yep. Um, sometimes we have to do DNA tests to establish if a, a child who um, comes out of woodwork is a, a biological child. Yep. There's a lot that sits behind it. If there's a, a spouse, well, if you've got a marriage certificate, there you go. If it's de facto, there's a number of elements that come into proving whether or not they were in a de facto relationship. That in itself can be an argument. Is the person eligible? Were they a de facto couple or not? And then we've got an estate we, we may have, it may be fairly clear, but I'm going to leave the witness again. Obviously, the better documentation, the better notice of intention of the deceased 
sitting there in court with a judge trying to work out what happened here. Because you really want to look at, so the biggest thing about family provisions claims is, has the person been left without adequate provision? If the answer is yes, well, what is adequate in the circumstances? That's going to look at, you know, what is the size of the estate? Um, what is the financial circumstances of the person bringing the application? Um, what are the circumstances of any competing claimants? Is there any conduct on that person's uh, behalf that may disentitle them from relief? A lot of it falls down to the financial need of that person bringing a claim. There's a lot that goes into these matters and it's really important for people when they are doing their estate planning to get the right advice. Because sometimes you can talk to someone and go, well, you know, what is your reason for not providing for this family member? If it is, oh, we know, look, I've got a child, they've lived with me their entire life, they've never paid any bills, they don't work, I just pay for everything. Well, that's a perfect person to bring a claim because they can show, well, I've got need and there's a level of dependency there. If it is, well, you know, um, I haven't spoken to them for 30 years, the relationship's estranged, um, they uh, hold a significant amount of wealth, they don't have any need, that person's claim is going to be watered down substantially as opposed to the child who is dependent. So there's so much that comes into it. If the reason is, oh, well, you know, we had an argument at Christmas and now we're not talking, so I want to exclude them. It's probably not going to be a great reason, but there's a lot that sits behind it that needs to be documented because <clears throat> the one we quite often see is uh, I want to distribute the estate fairly but not equally. Yes, and I, I think it's really important to document it because if you've got uh, a methodology of how you want to distribute your estate and there's reasons for, say, making an unequal distribution between the beneficiaries, you're not here to say why you've done it that way. So if there is some way that you can record that, um, that may assist the family in understanding why you've done it, the court in determining well, what the intent was that sits behind it. Because at the end of the day, the willmaker isn't here anymore. They can't give their side of the story. So as much detail that can be provided as to why um, really is going to help. Great. And this leads me into succession, which is the one we quite often see is the, the willmaker may have a business and they may have personal assets and both those, some of those assets are a lot riskier than the others. And how do we you know, give one of the children the rights to the business, but the other one got the property? And I'm going, well, I'd rather the property than, <laughs> than the business. But, but as part of a succession plan, we need to engage with, with that. And where I'm leading to, I want to bring in this notion of notional estate. Yes. So can you explain that for everybody? Okay, notional estate is um, a concept that only applies in New South Wales. And in other states, um, when you're looking at someone bringing a claim against the estate, you're looking at what is in the estate. So what is in the deceased person's name, uh, a property in their sole name, a bank account in their sole name? What comes into the estate to go via the will? That is what is available for a family provision claim. So assets jointly held, assets in superannuation, assets in trust, they're not going to come into a family provision claim in other states, except in New South Wales. New South Wales has notional estate provisions that allow the estate to, or the court to claw back certain non-estate assets to form part of a claim. 
Um, so things like superannuation, trust, jointly held assets that in other states and territories wouldn't be available for a provision claim can, in certain circumstances, be called back in in New South Wales. For how many years was that? It depends. Um, oh. there, <laughs> it can be anywhere between one and three years, depending on when yep. the transaction was undertaken and what the intent was behind it. Mm, it's really important that one. I've just, you know, going through a case where you might be trying to give the son the business into the future and you might have a grieved spouse or brothers and sisters yep. and, and I need the Real maker to stay alive for three years. That's yeah. what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, if you're looking to at clear, if, if you're looking, if you're looking at transfers um, in the lifetime, if you're looking at passing succession when that person is alive, you've got to look at the timing around it. Right. Just just quickly now, I just want to talk about succession on trust. Yes. A lot of people overlook that. They forget that they keep thinking it's part of their estate. It happens. I even saw someone yesterday where they have a very, very large estate, a number of companies and trusts. They had done wills previously with the solicitor who had gifted very, very large amounts to various friends and family members. When I looked at it, nothing is in their personal names. So all of these intended distributions will not take effect because they're all in trusts which don't form part of the estate. So what they need to do is look at who controls those trusts, who is the appointer, who is the trustee, and how can we pass control to make sure that the wealth ends up with those that they intend. I'm just always amazed the amount of people I see who haven't looked at this and who just assume... They, they consider the yeah. trust probably because often it's the, say we've got a husband and wife scenario, one or both of them are directors of the trustee company, they're dealing with those trust assets. They might be using trust property. It's just considered part of their wealth. But when you look behind it, it's not something that they can give in their wills. I've seen wills where people gift properties yeah. and you look at it, and you go, well, you don't own it. You don't know, it's not yours to gift. The trust owns it. We can pass control of the trust, but we can't give away trust assets in a will, which is why, as part of the estate planning process, it's important to do that fact-find, look at the source documents and work out who owns what and what comes into the will, what falls out of it, how can we construct it so those assets end up where the parties intend. Great. Which leads me to my next question, which is... You know, in our world, we're moving uh, you know, to a profession or prof professional scopes with clients. And I think one of the things we're grappling with or learning very, very quickly is how to scope the advice. Is the scope to mum and dad? Is it to the self-managed super fund? Is it to the trust? Or is it to all three? Yeah, that's a really good question because you've got to look at, you know, who's the client? Who do I act for? And often you may have a level of conflict that arises when you're acting for clients in their personal capacity as opposed to in their capacity as trustees of a self-managed superannuation fund or the family trust. So you've got to be really clear in, you know, what's the scope of my engagement? Who am I acting for? Do the different parties need independent legal advice? I think I'm always conflicted. <laughs> oh, I think I am. Yeah. Uh, in that situation, if you were, w would you have three different scopes? De depending on the circumstances, sometimes yes. You know, when you're looking at these inter-entity or inter-family transactions, it's all fine when everybody's getting along. But if there's a disagreement later on, you have to look at, well, you know, who do I owe my loyalty to? 
you know, who's my client? Is it the super fund? Is yeah. it the individuals? So let's talk about, you know, a, a real case where you've maybe got husband and wife and they've got a business asset, they've got a self-managed super fund, they might have other assets in a family trust, and they're looking at succession to pass the business on to kids into the future. There would be, I assume, multiple scopes in there, and at some stage, the your recommendation is the children need to go and get their own independent legal advice. Absolutely. Whenever you've got those interfamily arrangements, whether it's looking at a transfer of wealth or just giving that advice, you've got to be really clear about who you're acting for and independent legal advice is essential because this is where a lot of those transactions get attacked later on. You know, it may be that there are parents who are looking at transferring assets in their lifetime to a child and uh, that child might be the attorney under an enduring power of attorney. You've got to be really careful there because there's issues of conflict, independent legal advice, and these transactions can often be undone when you don't have that independence that sits behind it. Very, very good. I, I'm just, we always forget about binding financial agreements as well, don't we, when we're doing estate planning, about what the impact of those can be. Yeah, and it's really important to have a look at those financial agreements to see, well, you know, what has been agreed between the parties, because often those agreements will be drafted to bind the estates as well. So you want to factor that into the estate planning process, and those documents need to be updated like your estate planning documents. If you've got a financial agreement that was signed 20 years ago, there's been children born, there's been changes to the dynamics and the financial structure, that document is very much going to be watered down as opposed to one that's been regularly reviewed. A couple of final questions because this yes. has been great. Mutual wills, are they, are they declining? Are they, you're not seeing them as many, you're still seeing problems with them or they're great revenue for you for uh, estate challenges? They are. Um, there's a, a quote in um, a legal text, Hutley's, and I think it starts with mutual wills. Don't do them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, um, I am yet to see an estate where I've had a mutual will where there has not been an argument. I'm not a fan of them. Yeah. Um, I understand what sits behind them and where the intent lies, but I think there's far better ways to structure um, an estate plan. And in my experience, they often lead to disagreements. Great. What's an ideal client look like for you? I think it depends what the scope of our engagement is because my ideal client for a planning matter would be very different than my um, ideal client for an estate litigation matter. Ah, do I fall into either one of those categories? <laughs> You're my ideal estate planning client. Oh, good. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, and I think um, in terms of our firm and what we do, we really have a large scope. We've got um, lawyers who look after mums and dads, pensioners, up into the high net wealth client. So I think my ideal client from the estate planning piece is clients who understand the, the value of legal advice, understand that the process involves um, looking at you know, your circumstances, looking at documentation, having those meetings and understanding the, the benefit of people who ask why um, and really want to engage in the process to make sure the wealth that they have built up ends up with the family members, um, with the people that they intend. Uh, people who just want to come in and, you know, have a 15-minute appointment and fill out a questionnaire online and have a document spit out, I don't think you can give um, that holistic estate planning advice. Now, if I was a young lawyer out there, what, and I'm, 
looking and hearing you about, yes. you know, you're, you're very good and you're very, very good with clients. Thank you. High degree of emotional intelligence. <laughs> yep. What, what would be one of the one or two of the best things you've done from a work habit point of view? To... I, I think it's really important to focus your practice on one area. Um, in this day and age, the generalist lawyer, you can't do everything. You can't do um, conveyancing, commercial, family, uh, wills and estates. I think the generalist is yeah. I think it's you know focus your practice, find what you've got um, a passion for, and really get that technical knowledge. But also understand how to communicate with clients. I think that's How'd you where learn that? oh, um, we've done a lot of business coaching. We've done a lot with Paul Crane, who you've had on before. Oh, that's a great. Uh, <laughs> I think. Um, Getting that, you mentioned before, emotional intelligence, you know, being able to empathise with a client and connect with them and get to the why. Um, that's really important. So many lawyers I see don't ask clients, why are you doing that? They become order takers, yeah. not ask the question. And they, they tell the client what they want. Um, yep. It's really important to look at the why, in my opinion, and get that connection, build that relationship with the client so that you can give them the right advice. I reckon that's a great way for us to finish. Yeah. Yep. Is to ask about asking why. So where do we find you? I'm at Atwood Marshall Lawyers. Yep. We are based in our main office is in Coolangatta, but we've got offices at Rabina, Kingscliff, Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. So I'm sure I can stalk you on LinkedIn or yes, something. Yes, you can like find that. me on LinkedIn on our website. Um, we've got lots of information on there. Our firm practices in not only wills and estates, but property and commercial litigation, personal injuries, family, criminal. We've got it all. Ah, so good. That's a great way to finish. Angela, Harry, thank you very, very much. Thank you for having joining me. Joining us on the gap. Well done. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Gap Podcast. We're all about empowering advisors, giving them additional tools for their toolkit to give great advice. Great advice leads to great business frameworks, which leads to great results for the community.